Tales from Vietnam with Katie Schwartz and Liz Shaw of Dear Thyroid. Today on the podcast, Carol Rosenthal. Hello and welcome to the second installment of Tales from Thyanam. We're so thrilled that you've all joined us for this uh, special second edition of Dear Thyroid's podcast. Today we'd like to introduce to you a woman who not only is a thyroid cancer patient herself, but also someone who has turned her disease into a career and advocacy project. Thyroid cancer patient Carol Rosenthal was first diagnosed at the young age of 28. Since that time, she's made extracting real dialogue on cancer her goal, and in fact, she's been exceedingly successful. Carol is the author of Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, a book whose theme is grit and honesty and is a compilation of interviews given by thyroid cancer patients and survivors from the Bible Belt to the Big Apple. Part tell all, part how to. Everything Changes touches on those themes many chronically ill patients are too scared to talk about to even their closest friends and family, such as dating and sex, fertility, adoption, and parenting, alternative medicine, healthcare, and insurance. Carol also blogs about her cancer in her book at everythingchangesbook.com. She's been featured in Newsweek, the New York Times, Glamour Magazine, and the Huffington Post, among others. She's also the co-host of The Stupid Cancer Show, which streams Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and can be found at stupidcancershow.com. It is our privilege to welcome her to Tales from Vietnam today in the spirit of thyroid cancer awareness. Hello, Carol Rosenthal. So glad you could join us. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hello, glad to be here. So let's start at the beginning, Carol. I was diagnosed when I was 27, right before my 28th birthday. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and from what I've read on your site, everythingchangesbook.com, your cancer's not in remission. Can you tell us more about this and the type of thyroid cancer you have? Sure. I have papillary carcinoma which is the most common kind of thyroid cancer, and it's usually extremely treatable and has a very high survival and cure rate. But um, me being the rebellious person I am, I don't quite fit the mold. And so I have been living with thyroid cancer for the last nine years. I'm refractory, which means I don't uptake radioactive iodine treatment. So I haven't been able to uh, get rid of my cancer through that kind of treatment, which is commonly very effective for thyroid cancer patients. So I'm still living with tumors in me, and I've had a number of surgeries. And at this point, I have a really excellent doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I work with him very closely to monitor the size of my tumors. They've been holding steady and not growing. So right now I'm kind of on a wait-and-watch program living with the thyroid cancer in me. How do you deal with that? Well, I think one way that I deal with it is distracting myself from it. Um, I think healthy distractions are a wonderful thing. That's why I, you know, I blog so often and <laughs> how I got a book written is because it's a lot easier to think about somebody else's cancer than your own. Um, so I deal with it with distractions, but also, you know, it just takes time for it to sink in. And I think with anybody's cancer, you know, at different phases of living with it, it kind of sinks in in different ways. And so it's kind of a work in progress how I deal with it. You know, it changes over time. Um, I've definitely come to accept it, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. Now, Carol, um, you've previously mentioned that 
it was something to the extent of you, your cancer caused you to have a sex drive like a 13 year old boy. And I'm just wondering, as a woman, how did you handle this newfound sexuality? Did you feel like you were a stranger living in your own body? Was it difficult for you to accept? Yeah, you know, after I was diagnosed, um, I believe it was just because of my hormone levels. I just felt like this totally randy, like, uh, pubescent boy. You know, I just, I kind of wanted to, like, screw everything in sight. (laughs) I actually, I enjoyed it. I had a great time. You know, I figure you only live once. There could be so many worse side effects to having cancer than wanting to have sex all the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it actually, to me, it seemed like a really interesting sociological experiment because I was meeting all these guys and kind of saying, you know, hey, I'd like to hang out with you and have a good time, but I don't really necessarily need a committed relationship right now. And, you know, they were crushed. And I thought, this is so bizarre, you know? I spend most of the rest of my life looking for a long-term committed relationship, and now when I'm just kind of in it for the sex, guys don't know what to do with that. Um, So I thought that it was a really interesting time. And I think I was just, you know, I was really reeling from everything that was going on with me. And in some ways, I very much did want a committed, meaningful relationship. I wanted somebody to hold me and tell me that it was going to be okay because it's very hard being single and living with cancer. But at the same time, I was trying to manage so much with my health care that, you know, I was kind of in overdrive. And, um, you know, it didn't last forever, but it was fun while it did. Did you feel the need to um, share with the people that you were with that you did have cancer? Was that sort of something that you kept to yourself and kept personal? Yeah, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I was really in an open book about it. Um, I'm a very upfront person, and I it, it hadn't even occurred to me to not tell people about it. But as I wrote my book and was traveling throughout the United States and interviewing other cancer patients for Everything Changes, I spoke with this one woman whose name is Sheila, and she was incredibly private about her cancer. And she didn't even tell some of her friends that she had cancer. It was really an eye-opening experience to realize that this can be a very private, uh, very private experience. And so I think over time, I have been more private about my cancer. Uh, and it sort of suited me, suited me well as time has gone on to not have to bring it up with every person that I meet and not have it be the entirety of my identity. But when I was first diagnosed, yeah, you know, if you said hello to me on the street, I'd probably tell you that I had cancer. Your relationship with your thyroid cancer has definitely changed. Would you say that it's evolved or that it's just become more personal to you? Or maybe like, uh, would you say that uh, it has more to do with the fact that you've changed? You know, one thing that uh, is so unique to having thyroid cancer as a young woman, you know, I was diagnosed in my late 20s and I've been living with it through my 30s. And it's so hard to separate out what changes happen in my life because I have cancer and what changes happen in my life because this is just such a volatile time in life and, you know, starting new careers and having new relationships and moving to different places. And so, you know, I feel like I've changed as a person both because my cancer, but also because all of my friends are changing who they are and how they think and feel about their lives at this state in life as well. 
right? That makes a lot of sense. Thyroid cancer is, grown, is growing at an alarming rate amongst teens and young adults. What theories do you have about that, if any? I don't have any theories about why there are so many new diagnoses among young women in particular um, in their 20s, in their 30s. I feel like I leave the theorizing up to scientists who can come up with really empirical, concrete information and evidence about why this is becoming so much more prevalent. But I feel like it's up to me to sort of vet their research and see what's making sense. And there have been some theories that one reason why we're seeing so much more of it is because ultrasonography and getting ultrasounds of the neck, that that technology has improved so much that we're now able to see so much more thyroid cancer that maybe was there anyway, but we just couldn't see it before. Now, I do think that probably does account for some of the increase in diagnoses. However, it doesn't necessarily fit the entire picture because then we would see an increase in all kinds of thyroid cancer, you know, at the, at the ratio yeah. that's proportionate. So for follicular and medullary and papillary, we would see an increase in all of those kinds of cancer. But that's not happening. There's a lot more papillary that's happening. So there's still definitely a component to this, which we don't understand yet, and that we need to research to, to better understand why so many young women are you know, being diagnosed with thyroid cancer right now. Absolutely. Now, do you think that there is enough money being allocated for thyroid cancer research? You know, there are, thyroid cancer is not one of the big ones that gets a lot of research funding because it's so easily treatable. So I can sort of understand that. You know, they haven't put a lot of sunk a lot of dollars into something that, hey, when you get it, they know what the treatment is, you respond to it, and you're cured, um, which I sort of understand. However, once I got to the side of the fence where the treatment wasn't working for me, I thought, wouldn't it be lovely if they started throwing some right. more some more funding at this? Um, and as the number of diagnoses increases, there is starting to be more research dollars put into looking at different treatments for people who are resistant to thyroid cancer, um, radioactive iodine treatments, because as the pool of people who have thyroid cancer grows, of course, the pool of people like me who are refractory is also going to grow. There's more monetary incentive there for pharmaceutical companies to develop a drug for people like me now, because the number of us who will be needing it and needing to pay for it is going to increase. I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more um, attention being given to thyroid cancer because of that. Let's hope. You had to go to extreme measures to procure health insurance. Can you please speak more to that? I thought that I had health insurance when I was diagnosed, and I actually did the day that I was diagnosed. But when I went to get my second opinion, within the next week, I, I called uh, a different doctor's office and was scheduling the appointment with the nurse on the phone, and she said, I'm sorry, we can't schedule you for a second opinion because you don't have health insurance. And to me, hearing that I didn't have health insurance was almost more shocking than hearing that I had cancer to begin with. What had happened is that my employer had forgotten to submit my COBRA papers. Now, COBRA is the kind of insurance that you're able to obtain when you are leaving a job and if you've been getting insurance through your employer, you can remain on that employer's group insurance program for a designated number of months. And I then had a pre-existing condition for all of three days I had had cancer. 
So no insurance company was willing to insure me. So I was really caught in this horrific trap that is a situation that so many young adults are familiar with because we're the largest group of uninsured adults in the United States. We're working, you know, entry-level jobs that don't have health insurance. We're sort of bouncing from job to job or college to internship to jobs. And I think most young adults want health insurance. It's just that we can't afford it. And so I really had to fight to get health insurance. And I was a little bit conniving, and I have to say, had told some little white lies here and there to get what I needed, Um, because for me, you know, the cliche of life or death was not a cliche, it's really what I was facing. I had 30 tumors that were laced throughout my neck, and I needed surgery to have them removed. They're already exorbitant with medical insurance, but without it, forget it, you're absolutely frozen. A recent statistic that I had learned is that if you look at medical debt in the United States, 18 to 34-year-olds carry more medical debt than any other age group. And I was so shocked to find that out. So that often, you know, for a cancer patient, you know, you think, thank God I've gotten through treatment. Thank God I've gotten through surgery. I get to go back out into the world and start my life again. But we're starting this life again with all of this financial baggage that's come along. Even if you have health insurance, often young adults are underinsured. And, you know, it's kind of bottom of the barrel insurance or they find some way to exclude part of the condition that you're living with and don't cover it. And so it's really challenging. I mean, we're not uh, we're not sitting on years and years of savings. Um, many of us are just starting our careers, and it's just it's a very, very challenging part of living with cancer. And I, I think that for most people, the administrative and financial side of cancer kind of goes hand in hand with just the experience of having cancer, that you can't really separate those two when you're young. Right. right. Even if you have what's considered great medical insurance, you're still going to have to contend with an, an exorbitant amount of medical costs associated because your insurance, which is supposed to be so fabulous, doesn't cover it. You know, and it's also very, very hard. A lot of people have jobs where they don't get a lot of sick leave. You know, if you don't show up at work that day, then you don't get paid. And if you're sitting in a cancer clinic and you have to wait four hours in order to get in to see your doctor and then get all the labs and the blood work, you know, it really impacts your finances even more. And it's very challenging. It's not just that we need to fight for coverage of all all Americans who are uninsured, but we really need to fight for coverage for people who are underinsured too. And speaking for myself, it's very crazy to me just because I don't have cancer, but I, you know, I have an autoimmune disease that isn't always life-threatening. And at the time when I was diagnosed, um, I had health insurance and I still do. And my medical bills are just sky high and sometimes they do seem impossible to pay. And these are just from standard doctor's visits and, you know, blood work. So for you as a cancer patient, I just can't imagine what your medical bills must be like. Yeah, I mean, I think that this problem affects everyone equally. Um, Thyroid cancer patients can go through long periods of time with just maintenance checkups um, and which bills might not be that expensive. Um, But if you don't have any health insurance and you can't even cover something like your Synthroid, um, it's very challenging. And 
I realized when I was talking with patients around the country and interviewing them for my book, Everything Changes, I had a lot of advice and resources to give them because I went through this myself of trying to figure out where do I turn, who do I go to for financial help, how do I get questions answered about what kinds of public assistance I may or may not qualify for. And I didn't want each patient having to reinvent that wheel and investing the amount of time that it took that I spent in researching the answers to these questions. So it was really important to me to include all of this information in my book. And I've made um, the first chapter of my book downloadable for free on my website because the first chapter deals with a lot of these financial resource questions and information. And it was really important to me that patients have access to that information. I know everybody hears the word cancer with a big C and they're like, everything must be worse when you have cancer. Your bills must be worse. Your appointments must be worse. Life is worse when you have cancer. But it's really, it, it, it just depends. I think it's just, it's the idea that um, because, you know, cancer is life-threatening that there's a sense of urgency. So it, I think it's just the idea that you're in and out of doctor's offices all the time and you know, that you need constant attention and monitoring, I think, is what makes it seem like it would be so much more expensive. That sense of urgency is pretty different when you're talking about papillary thyroid cancer. Now, if you have medullary thyroid cancer, it, it, it is, um, time is much more important and it is a much faster growing kind of cancer. But papillary is a, typically a very slow growing form of cancer. So... It's one thing, I think, when people are first diagnosed and they hear that they have cancer, it's like, oh, my God, I have to get this cut out of me immediately or I'm going to die. And it's very different with thyroid cancer, with papillary thyroid cancer. And for that, we're really, really lucky. I mean, we're lucky that we are able to take time to get second and third opinions if you're able to afford them or get access to having those opinions and to take the time to do your research and make points because time, very fortunately, is on your side if you have a very traditional, typical form of papillary carcinoma. I get very frustrated when people say to me, you're so lucky to have thyroid cancer because it's so good. It's such a good kind of cancer to have. And But what I don't mind is when people say, you know, oh, you have thyroid cancer, it's really good that it's so slow growing. I mean, it's not the only thing I want to hear from them because then it sort of feels like they're discounting the rest of my feelings about how challenging it is if all they're focusing on is how lucky I am that I have cancer. But in writing my book, I have interviewed so many other kinds of cancer patients, and I have come to feel pretty grateful that my cancer is slow growing that for most people it's very treatable and that we have such a high survival rate. But what's very hard about it is when somebody says, you're so lucky that you have thyroid cancer because I don't want to be compared to everyone else. The bottom line is you have cancer. And that's there's so many feelings that must come with that. Yeah, I, a wonderful way of looking at it that I learned from a social worker at Cancer Care who I interviewed in my book. She said, you know, don't compare yourself to anybody else who has cancer. What you need to compare is your life before you were diagnosed to your life after you were diagnosed. And that's 
hard. It's hard to not be the same healthy person who didn't have cancer. And so if anybody's looking to compare, <laughs> to make comparisons, yes, I do think that there are many things for which I am grateful that my cancer is slow growing, that I still do have a very high survival rate, even though it's incurable. Um, my particular case of it is incurable, but it's very challenging to live with. And I think it's important for each of us to sort of have a little answer in the back of our pocket that we can whip out when somebody tells us how lucky we are to have thyroid cancer to be able to say, you know what, I do understand that I am really lucky that this probably isn't going to kill me, but I don't feel so lucky because this is a really hard thing to live with and it's been really hard for me. Because we often, you know, we walk away from those conversations feeling like somebody just like ran over us with an 18-wheeler. And it's so unempowering to have somebody say, you're you're so lucky, and then you just sort of walk away not knowing what to say. So I always encourage people, you know, practice a good answer that you're going to give somebody that's not necessarily a smack in the face, but it's going to kind of wake them up a little bit to how hard this really is for you. Or else your, your friends and family, if they're the ones saying this, they won't know the kind of help that you need. They won't know how hard it is that you're going through this unless you're able to tell them. I think that our friends and family are really scared, and I think they're scared for us, and they feel nervous. So they think that saying something that's going to make us feel better will make us feel better, but it really doesn't. You know, we just really need to be able to have conversations with people where we can be real and honest with them and let them know that this is hard or this is scary. It's true for a lot of chronic illnesses. Um, I know just speaking for myself, you know, when people say things to me like, oh, well, it could be worse, (laughs) you know, I find that really offensive because maybe my disease could be a lot worse, definitely could, but at the same time, you know, what I'm going through or what you're going through, it needs to be validated because it is really hard. Yeah, so to be able to say, you know, it could be worse, but I actually have what I have now, and I'd so much rather have your life where you don't even have the illness that I have. I had not even thought of myself as part of the thyroid community until I found your blog a couple of months ago. Wow. I've been living with this disease for nine years, and I have always thought of myself as a young adult cancer patient. I had never even recognized that I was part of the thyroid community. And so I think that there's so much uh, room there for collaboration and for people to learn from each other. I do think that one thing that thyroid cancer patients have to be aware of is that for our disease, in order to sort of stave off cancer growth, we really need to work hard to keep our TSH suppressed. So many other people who are living with thyroid disorders are trying to find a balance. You know, you're trying to find that balance between being hypo and hyper, and you want to get somewhere right in the middle. But for thyroid cancer patients, once you've gone through your treatment and you are on long-term hormone therapy, our goal is to actually be a little bit hyper. So I have had uh, young adults email me or make comments on my blog saying, I'm very confused. You know, I was on these thyroid cancer sites, and they were saying that this value of blood test is what we're shooting for, and all of these websites are saying that, but my doctor is telling me that my number is still too high. So we do have some pretty different goals as far as where we need to be with being hyperactive with our thyroid function. And so it's just something that 
I think when thyroid cancer patients start looking around the greater thyroid community websites, um, chat rooms, we just need to keep that in mind that our goals for our hormone levels are very different than people who have other kinds of, of thyroid disease. Well, it's very important, too, that thyroid cancer patients be included in thyroid support, period, because right. even though, uh, you know, you are dealing with a different type of uh, disease, it's still thi- it still falls under the umbrella of thyroid disease, you know? And Absolutely, so- and I, I think because we are living hyper, there's so much support and recognition of what that means from other patients who maybe don't have cancer but who are battling with that feeling of being a hyper. So I think there's a lot of affirmation and recognition there for how hard it is to be living in a permanent state of being hyperthyroid. And I also think that sometimes thyroid cancer patients end up feeling a little bit marginalized from the cancer community because most often we don't have oncologists. Most often we're sort of the point person coordinating our care between Um, either an ENT or an endocrinologist and a surgeon and a nuclear medicine doctor. And often we're treated in the endocrinology department instead of being treated in the oncology department or in the typical cancer center. So sometimes I think we can feel a little bit alienated in that world too. And it was only recently that it was after the director of of the cancer center at the hospital where I get treatment heard me on NPR and he called me up and said, you know, oh, I just want to extend, you know, an invitation to you and make sure that you're taking advantage of all of our social workers and nutritionists and the library that we have here and support groups. And I want to make sure that you know that you're welcome. And I thought, thank you for doing that. I wish you had done that when I was diagnosed because I'm not up on the floor with those other patients. I'm in the endocrinology department. And so all of these services were not extended to me. So I just want to let thyroid cancer patients know, hey, it doesn't hurt to go knock on the door if you're being treated in the endocrinology department. Go take the elevator up or down to whatever flow the oncology department is and say, hey, I need some help with my nutrition or I need some help with being a social worker. That they, If you have cancer, they should be making that available to you too. I think it's sort of safe to say that anyone who knows what a thyroid is, you know, probably has some form of thyroid disease and therefore, you know, even thyroid cancer patients, even though it is a different disease, um, you know, they're still part of the community just because they're aware of this part of their body. What advice would you give to someone who has not yet been diagnosed but maybe is, um, you know, suspicious that something could be going on with their thyroid or that they could be in a similar situation that you were in? I would make sure that you get an ultrasound. That's really the most definitive way to see if you have a growth in your neck, and it's very reliable um, and pretty non-invasive. As a matter of fact, I often feel like I'm at a spa when I'm getting my ultrasound. You know, they turn the lights down low, and um, it's very relaxing. Um, You should have gone when you were hyper. Maybe you had a hot guy. (laughs) (laughs) So make sure that you get an ultrasound. Make sure that if you're able to, that you get a couple of different opinions from people. You want to make sure that you're seeing a doctor who has treated a number of thyroid cancer cases. If you can see somebody who's worked exclusively with thyroid cancer, that's great. You don't necessarily want to go to your average, like, jack-of-all-trades ENT doctor who's working on tonsils and also 
also happens to have like three thyroid cancer cases a year. You want to see somebody who's really very specialized in that. You want to make sure that you follow up with any checkups if they don't see that anything's wrong with you. And they say, but come back in six months. Do go back in six months. Um, and it's also really great to just make sure that even if you're not suspicious at all that anything's wrong with you, make sure that either your gynecologist or that your primary care physician, if you have one, uh, is checking your neck at your doctor's appointments. You know, that whenever you go in for a doctor's appointment, and if they don't do it, just ask them, can you please check my neck so that they can feel around. I know that there are a lot, there's a lot of advice out there to check your own neck, and I actually don't advise people to check their own neck. Now, I'm not a doctor, so you can do whatever you want. So if you're sitting at home and touching your neck now, that's just fine. But I, there are so many structures in the neck and so many things that can feel like maybe a tumor, but I have gotten inflamed lymph nodes from having a pimple or from having a PMS or from fighting off a cold. It can be very scary sometimes to feel something in your neck and think all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, I have a tumor. Well, if it doesn't go away, then maybe have it checked. But I really do rely on, you know, just the professionals to check my neck. Even I'm living with, with cancer in me, and I just don't touch my neck that much myself because it's very hard for me to discern what is what. And so I just make sure that I have a really good professional who's doing it for me. And it's good to just have it done on a regular basis because thyroid cancer is usually asymptomatic. There really aren't many um, signs and symptoms to look for with thyroid cancer. Your thyroid normally functions pretty well even when you have cancer in it. So you can have thyroid cancer and your blood tests can still come back normal. I mean, I had 30 tumors in my neck and my blood work came back normal. Wow. So, yeah, your thyroid is, has an amazing ability to function even when much of it is, you know, engulfed with a tumor. Um, it's still able to perform its function pretty well. So you want to make sure if your doctor just does a blood test and says, oh, your, your blood numbers are fine, you can't possibly have thyroid cancer, that's when you need to find another doctor because they don't know what they're talking about. You need yeah. to find someone who's going to get you a good ultrasound. If you had no symptoms, what sort of led you to being diagnosed? I had been feeling like hell for about a year and a half with extreme fatigue and digestive pain and you know I'd wake up in the morning I'd brush my teeth and I would literally have to go back to sleep on the bathroom floor because I didn't have energy to walk my bed. And my doctors checked me for everything and could find absolutely nothing wrong with me. I was a choreographer at the time, and I had injured my neck in a rehearsal, and I had a performance coming up, and a friend of mine worked at a chiropractor and said, you have to go see this chiropractor. She's really very good. Chiropractors always kind of freak me out. And don't mm, me too, me too, me too. You know, one wrong crack and forget oh, it. Oh, yeah. Um, but I like, okay, I'll try this. And she looked at my neck before she even touched me. And she said that because she knew that thyroid problems are so prevalent in young women, she always looked at their neck and at their thyroid before she did any work on them. And so she didn't work on me. She just pulled me up onto my feet and said, come over here and look in the mirror. What's this lump? Where did this come from? What's going on here? She sent me packing. She mm-hmm. saved your life. I mean, she really was instrumental in saving your life and getting you diagnosed, yes? She really was. I mean, the thing that was very hard is that once I got to my doctor's, I had a very managed 
you know, tightly managed HMO, and they said, you get a 10-minute urgent care appointment. And the doctor there said, oh, you just have a cold, that's all. That's what this bump is. And they said, I don't have a cold. You just have a cold. Okay, your 10 minutes is up. And I had to go to four of those appointments before they would actually believe that something was wrong with me. They would not make a referral for me to see a head and neck surgeon or to see oh. an ENT. And I finally went down to the office um, where I knew that they would do a, a neck biopsy. And I just said to the receptionist, I'm not leaving your desk until you make an appointment for me. You can call security if you have to. I'm not <laughs> yeah. leaving. People look at young folks and say, you know, you're so young. There couldn't be anything wrong with you. And no matter what kind of cancer, young adults usually have to go multiple times to the doctor to get somebody to believe that this could potentially be cancer, that something could be wrong with them. And my doctors still say to me, we don't know what that year and a half of feeling like crap was for you. That was not related to your thyroid cancer. We don't know what that was. So it's very, very dissatisfying to have that answer. Really? I have cancer? Not what is even the problem? There's a lot of crossover between what thyroid yeah. patients go through and thyroid yeah. cancer patients because thyroid patients, what they're going through gets marginalized all the time. You really have to be a strong advocate. You have to believe yourself. You have to fight, 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 even if a trained doctor who has, you know, the letters M and D after their name tells you that they know what's going on. And if it doesn't feel right to you, then keep persisting and do research, do your own medical research. You can go online. I have a ton of tips in my book about how to do really quality online research so that you're not finding yourself on quack sites or so that you're not going online and scaring yourself, you know, with the miserable worst-case scenarios. That's not good either. But to just be really proactive, you have to take your health into your own hands. If you're looking for health insurance information, there's a white box in the right-hand column of my website with a picture of my book. And if you scroll down, it'll say, click here to download Chapter 1. And when you download Chapter 1, there are all of these resources at the end of that chapter, which is the resources about financial aid and getting health insurance and access to health care coverage. And in my book, there is also a whole section and a chapter about how to do research. And my book is available. It, it should be on the shelf in, in bookstores. Um, um, get it anywhere. Just, just ask for the title and, and my name and you can get it. Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s. And I've actually been getting some amazing emails from people recently who have all different kinds of autoimmune disorders and diabetes who are not cancer patients, but who are patients, young patients, and reading the book and, and finding a lot of help from it. Carol, um, if you could take us back to the moment where you were first diagnosed, if you feel comfortable, um, what was it like hearing that you had cancer? Um, the very first thing I thought when that chiropractor showed me the slump on my neck and sent me packing to go to the hospital and said, this could be a tumor and you could have cancer, the very first thought that crossed my mind was, I have absolutely no regrets in my life and I'm only 27, but if I die now, I think it would be okay. Um, and I felt really kind of proud. It felt to me like a good barometer that I had been leading my life the way that I wanted to, that felt meaningful, that was compassionate and good to other people. And I felt like my mom and dad did a really good job of raising me. <laughs> and so, you know, that stayed with me for a long time because I really felt like I didn't need 
cancer to teach me life lessons. And I know that that's not true for everyone. I mean, I've certainly interviewed many people for whom they've said, hey, if I could go back and make the choice whether or not to have cancer, I would because it's taught me so many things about my life. And I look at them a little bit like they're crazy, but I do have compassion <laughs> for them. And I, under- yeah. I understand that for some people, it, it really is a life-changing event, and it changes them for the better. And there are definitely some great things that I've learned through cancer. I've learned that I'm a writer. Um, I've written this book. I've learned that I'm a really good listener. If I could go back, I would definitely say, please don't give me this disease. I was leading a pretty good life beforehand. So, you know, when I learned that I could potentially have cancer, I think I accepted it immediately. And after I got the diagnosis, it was just, I never had why me. It was, you know, why not me? Of course, you know, people out there are getting cancer and I'm one of them. Aside from having thyroid cancer, what else propelled you? Well, I really love this statement that Greg made. Greg is an engineer who is very analytical and he's in my book and he was talking about his own cancer and he said, you know, I can't fight the cancer. Cancer has a mind of its own. It's going to do what it, it does and actually cancer is a natural process in our body that's just gone out of control. It's not like it's some foreign invading thing. It's our own cells um, that are dividing rapidly and wildly and out of control, kind of like a crazy teenager. And he said, you know, I, I can't fight the cancer. That's what my doctors are for. I'm not going to fight the cancer. I'm going to fight the insurance company that won't pay for my procedure. I'm going to fight the administrator who has lost my records and my files three times. I'm going to fight the doctor who tells me, oh, I'm not eligible for that clinical trial, when I actually am, but he just hasn't read the fine print. And I sort of feel that that is similarly what's gave, given me the, the ammunition to be so aggressive is because... Our system is imperfect. There are a lot of mistakes that can happen, and the quality of my own care is really in my hands. And when I stopped complaining so much about it, not that we shouldn't complain, we should fetch, definitely, get it (laughs) off our chests, but I needed to move beyond fetching. I needed to make sure that I was doing everything that I could to get the best treatment possible because I knew that my doctors aren't going to dot all their I's and cross all their T's. I have to make sure they're doing it for me. Speaking of, um, you know, fighting the disease versus not fighting the disease, um, Katie and I often speak about the fact that as patients we should be allowed to be angry at the fact that this disease, um, you know, has really stolen our lives and has changed our lives. So do you ever feel the need or the right to feel angry at the disease or do you uh, sort of come from a more peaceful place where you accept it? I've always accepted my disease. I don't know that the word peaceful has ever been used to describe me, though. Um, I accept my disease. I'm not angry at my disease. I actually, in some ways, think that my disease is amazing because it's managed to outsmart all of my doctors who don't know what to do about it. So I'm like, wow, you're really smart. I wish we were as smart as you are, thyroid cancer of mine. Um, So I'm not angry at my disease. I am angry at uh, 
the government for not making it easier for me to get COBRA access. Uh, I am angry at the people who lose my medical charts. I am angry that the situation still exists in my body and in my life, and Mm -hmm. I'm angry that we haven't yet found the mechanisms that control cancer and that control cancer growth. I mean, we really don't understand a ton about how to cure cancer. We know how to kill it off with a lot of toxic chemicals that cause damage and harm to the rest of our body, and I'm at elevated, uh, my chance of getting other kinds of cancer is elevated because of being subjected to radioactive iodine treatment. I just wish that you know, my fellow human beings could step up to the plate a little bit and help me out here, find a cure. So, right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so grateful. I'm pretty angry, but not at my disease itself. Um, I think, you know, like Greg said, my disease knows nothing else other than trying to survive. You know, my disease is just trying to perpetuate itself in my body, and that's what cancer does. Right. So, I mean, I think everyone has to find their own way with it, and you have clearly found a way that absolutely hands down works for you. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's really important. You and sound- it's, so, it's so different for everybody. I mean, yeah. people have very different approaches. You know, I'm not um, a prayerful person. Um, I'm not necessarily religious or God-oriented. And for people who are, those approaches work for them. I think the thing that's most important is that everybody really recognize and be honest with themselves about how they're feeling about their cancer and that you find a way that really works for you. It doesn't, I, I don't really like the idea of trying to, you know, fit yourself into the box of a cancer theory. This is how you cope with cancer. You know, I think it's really good to look at how a bunch of different people cope and try things on for size, but you've got to find your own way. So, Ms. Carol Rosenthal, what adjective best describes you? Um, well, let's see. I think I might say feisty at the moment. I'm feeling a little feisty after talking about all of this, you know, kicking the butts of the medical system. Yes, I would have to agree. You're feisty and you've got moxie. Do you know what it means? That's how I would describe you. Feisty with moxie. Thank you. Um, What are three things people might not know about you that you'd like them to know? If there is something that I would like someone to know about me, they already know it. Because I don't really beat around the bush or mince words too much. And when I was diagnosed, I created in my life something that I fondly call the drama reduction program, (laughs) which meant cancer is very dramatic. My life is very dramatic. And I don't really have the energy for the kind of drama that I can control, like crazy friends who are always calling me with some, you know, massive crisis. Um, Things like that. I started looking at the ways that I could reduce the amount of drama in my life. And one way that I realized I could reduce the amount of drama was by being more upfront with people and telling them really what was on my mind and communicating, being more communicative with people. And I think because of that, if there's something I want you to know about me, you already know it. If I'm going to tell you, I've told you, or I will tell you. So, yeah. I think that's great. I I I do, too. I love that. Well, Carol, thank you so much for being on the show. You're a doll. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us today on another episode of Tales from Vietnam with special guest Carol Rosenthal. 
You can find out more about her at everythingchangesbook.com. To find out more about Dear Thyroid, please log on to dearthyroid.org. Thank you, Chris Campbell, for being such a wonderful producer and editor of Tales from Vietnam. We hope you'll tune in again next time for the next installation of Tales from Vietnam. Take care. The music you've heard is from the Coconut Monkey Rocket, and it's called Shopping for Explosives, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. The executive producers of Tales from Vietnam are Chris Campbell, Katie Schwartz, Liz Shaw, and Dear Thyroid. The podcast was edited by Chris Campbell. Tales from Vietnam is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works License. Leave a comment and find out more about the business of thyroids at dearthyroid.org.